0: It's Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. If you have read the book, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, you are familiar with the name Daniel Lieberman. Along with his colleague, Dennis Bramble, his research has been used to support the thesis that human beings owe some of our evolutionary success to our ability to run efficiently. Dr. Lieberman is a paleoanthropologist and professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, who's authored books about the human body and the human head. His most recent book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding, explores purposeful exercise as it relates to our evolution, why it is a rarity outside of the developed world, and how we have medicalized and commodified exercise to our own detriment. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Daniel Lieberman, a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and the author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Thanks for taking time, Dan, to um, visit with me today and talk about your book and talk about some of your past research too, because I have lots of questions.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for asking me.
0: So first, I think we um, For our audience, a lot of people are going to be familiar with you because you were profiled in Born to Run, um, the book by Christopher McDougall, and um, some of your research um, was talked about in that book, Um, and it kind of kicked off this, for better or worse, barefoot running trend. And I'm... um, also a triathlon coach and a running coach and i've been a runner all my life so that was very interesting to a lot of people and i'm i'm kind of curious that this isn't really talking about your current book but i'm really curious about where you sit on all that now and where your research went from that time
1: that's a complicated question
0: <laughs> i love complicated yeah. answers <laughs>
1: um well look um so in 2004, Dennis Bramble and I wrote this paper, uh, which was on the cover of Nature, and entitled "Born to Run," and that obviously got a lot of press interest. And uh, soon thereafter, we started work. I started working on barefoot running because if humans evolved to run uh, millions of years ago, obviously we ran barefoot for most of those millions of years. So, uh, so I was sort of doing research on that, and then uh, McDougal showed up, and um, and uh, as you say, popularized a lot of my work. Um, I'm not sure he got it all right, but uh, he certainly popularized it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think people often confuse what I think and what I say with what he wrote. Um, and, uh, and let's just say they're not entirely coincident. Um, so um, um, and part of the, one of the reasons why I wrote Exercise is that I found uh, a lot of the uh, attitudes, ideas, you know, misconceptions myths we can call them about about physical activity um to be i think um, i think somewhat uh, problematic and um and i wanted to and that's why each chapter of the book sort of tackles a myth and one of the myths is that um you know that if we, you know if what we if we suddenly you know the, the idea behind that book is that if you know we've basically been contaminated by civilization and if we didn't have nike shoes and gatorade and Garmin watches, or you know what have you? We would just naturally get out of bed and be able to run fifty mile races, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. And that that's what I call the myth of the athletic savage. Um, mm-hmm. um, the Tarahumara, um, of course, are great runners. There are there are other Native American peoples who are also great runners. There, uh, it's just that the Tarahumara have really kind of kept those traditions going more than other uh, than many other uh, 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 Native American peoples. But, but it's just as hard for them to run 50 miles as it is for us, I um, mean, they're human beings. And, um, and the reason that they do it, which is not really mentioned in the book, um, is that it's spiritual for them. It's an act of prayer. Um, um, and, it, and, it, uh, um, and most of them don't run 50 miles. So I, I, I kind of get the sense that, um, you know, people think that, that somehow there's something special about the Tarahumara. What's special about them is what they care about. Um, and, and that there's some, that yet somehow, you know, Westerners with, with, with Nike shoes, et cetera, you know, somehow, you know, there's something evil about shoes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wear shoes most of the time. I just took my shoes off just a few seconds ago and I started talking to you, but I wear shoes most of the time. Um, uh, shoes like everything else have trade-offs. They're good things and they're bad things about them. They're, they're cost their benefits, but they're not, you know, like coffins for your feet and mm-hmm. evil and, you know, um, and I so I think there's a, you know, I, I mean, much as that book got a lot of people excited and 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 got them, you know, out the door and and excited, but it also I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of people got injured as a result because they 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 thought, my gosh, if I take my shoes off, I'll be perfect, you know, I'll I'll never get an injury in my life, and and my girlfriend will love me more, and I mean, who knows what they thought, right? But, um, uh, you know, there's there are no magic guns, there are no silver bullets, there are solutions, there, you know. Uh, it's, it's, you know, life is more complicated than that.
0: Well, I I've been a coach for decades. <clears throat> and when that happened, you know, a lot of my clients kind of jumped on that bandwagon. And I, like you said, I saw so many injuries, especially calf injuries because sure. people weren't used to being so flat on the ground, you know? And um, it, it was, you know, I think, I think everybody, especially performance athletes are always looking for the thing that's going to do it for them, you know, but going back to the Taramara that I love the spiritual part of it, because that is really what you see in a lot of people up here in Alaska, at least, you know, being in the mountains is Sunday church. That's where people go for their church and people make it really obvious that that's what it's all about. So I definitely see that connection. I really like that a lot.
1: Yeah. And sadly that was missing from the book. I mean, the book really yeah. is about a bunch of gringos who go down there and import a, a, a gringo race. And, and then, and then, you know, and then it's, you know, it's us versus them. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's kind of a, you know, it's obviously a, a great story, but, um, um, but uh but really, the, the, the Native American running traditions, and there are many of them, and they're all incredibly diverse, um, are, I think, um, the more I learn about them, the more um, uh, humbled I am about, by them, and also just sort of in awe of them. They're beautiful. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people who are runners, uh, or just athletes of other sorts, get that connection, right? There's a spirituality to... To physical activity, uh, especially endurance physical activity, um, and uh, and and worldwide, you know, people have that kind of spiritual connection. Uh, that's true also in in southern Africa among the among the Kalahari uh, hunter gatherers and 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 elsewhere. So there's a it's 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 part of being a human being, and and we've lost touch, I think, with some of these, um, you know, our modern hyper industrialized commodified Medicalized Western culture—we've lost touch with uh, some really basic, fundamental things, and um, uh, and really, that's you know, my hope is that we can, you know, really that if there's any one reason I wrote this book is that I I I I think that the medicalization and commercialization and commodification of, of exercise. There's nothing wrong with it, but it, 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 it only takes you so far. And we're missing out on so many other aspects of, of physical activity. And that's really why I wrote the book. And that's why I entitled it Exercise, because I think we've become exercised about exercise. And I think, to be honest, you know, commercialization does it, but also books like Born to Run also make people exercised about exercise.
0: Well, I, I think that's what really attracted to me to your book, although I knew your history and everything. So when I read it, because I'm in that place as well. So this is a, a little bit of selfishness on my part, I guess. Um, but you know, I've been an athlete and a competitive athlete almost my entire life and I'm in my late fifties and I'm just don't feel it anymore. I like to just go for a walk with my dog or go for an easy hike. I don't want to be signing up for another Ironman or whatever. I'm just kind of done with that. The only thing I really am more interested in is doing long trail runs, maybe in groups of people and in a race sort of situation, but, um, I'd rather be out with my dog or my friends.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, there's a, you know, I think there's so many wonderful ways to enjoy, um, to enjoy being physically active and, um, um and that's, that's great. You know, and the, the fact that you're, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel like there's, um, you know, they have to do a marathon or, a, or an iron man or, uh, or a uh, swim the English channel or, or whatever. And, and, uh, um, and if you want to do that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, obviously. Well, maybe climbing Mount Everest might might have some, <laughs> some downsides to the planet. Yeah. But, but you know, most of them are just, you know, that's great. But also there's, you know, but the but there's the sense of uh, that, you know, people have to, you know, why doesn't, you know, climbing the stairs in your building and name the city, right? You know, Manhattan or Boston or Chicago or LA or. I guess there are tall buildings in Anchorage, right? But uh, um,
0: it's sort of not that tall. <laughs> or,
1: but you know, that's also exercise. You know, that's right. also physical activity, and that can be rewarding. I mean, there's you know, there's or just going for a walk or 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 you know, whatever, going dancing. I mean, I think we totally undervalue dancing as a as a deep and ancient and and form of physical activity that every culture in the world uh, practices. Um, and, when uh,
0: I read that chapter about dancing, that really struck me like I had never thought about that before. So you talk a lot about this in the book about how dancing is like, to every single culture, we do dance, we dance as a group, yeah. and it's a social thing, and it's a spiritual thing. And I found that fascinating. And yeah. I remember when I was young and used to go out dancing a lot, like I'd be like drenched in sweat and, you know, come yeah, home all tired and smelling <laughs> at that time, smelling like cigarette smoke though, unfortunately. Right. Cause everybody smoked in clubs at that time. Oh yeah. But...
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> me too. I remember that. But, you know, I mean, I mean, I have to say, um, uh, you know, just a few years ago um, in January, it was a, you know, my daughter and I just decided we just had to get, get out of here and, and we just, got on a plane and went to, um, to the Yucatan Peninsula. And we spent some time in, in, uh, in, um, in, in, in Merida, which is the oldest one. Of the, they claim it's the oldest continuously um, inhabited city in the world. Oh. And, and Merida, excuse me, I mispronounced it, but, um, and there in the city square, everybody's just dancing every evening. And, you know, they do that in Chihuahua too. And wow. the Taramara have these wonderful dances. And I've seen it in, you know, in, in front of the opera in Vienna and all over the world. People dance, and uh, you know, that the, the Hadza dance, the people in the villages in Kenya where we work dance. Everywhere you go, people dance. And um, and yet uh, in the, you know, streets of Cambridge, you don't see that very often. You know, people yeah. don't dance very much. And, <laughs> and it's, I think it's... Um, you know, it's kind of sad actually. Um, it's a wonderful form of social physical activity that is a cultural universal and um and um and you know like it's good for you in all kinds of ways, mentally, mm-hmm. spiritually, physically, etc. But there that's we
0: are. De- that's again, yeah, that's definitely something in, in the United States, you definitely lose as you get older. You just don't have the opportunities and you know. Like you know, you used to go to the clubs when you are younger, but you don't do that when you're older. Well, why I not? guess I, I know.
1: Why, yeah. Why, why can't we? Why can't we spend a, just a just a pittance of stair dollars and, and have bands on street corners in the evenings in cities, right? And people can dance. Why not? It'd be great for everybody. And great for I think that's great a, for everybody.
0: I think it's a great know, and idea. Would, but people and who would that,
1: object? Who would object?
0: The the people who don't like to pay taxes.
1: <laughs> oh, that's right. You're in Alaska, right? Here in Massachusetts, we love paying taxes, right? So, hey, I would uh, pay
0: more taxes for a lot of things, believe me.
1: <laughs> but also you wouldn't have to pay a lot, right? I mean, the right. the, 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 the benefit relative to the cost is tiny. Yeah. And you no, don't have to go to one I, I dance agree. and you'd think, hey, this is actually not a bad way to spend our, our, our money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I would totally do that for sure. I'm all for spending more on taxes to have things for the community. I'm about that. So, um. Hey, one of your like really earlier, early things because I was just reviewing uh, the chapter in Born to Run that you were in, which I found really interesting was this idea of um, uh, like the the human head is unique to being able to run, and the head you have a book on the head, don't you?
1: Yeah, I wrote a book called The Evolution of the Human Head. In fact, that's what got me interested in running. um, Is that we have um, uh, all kinds of adaptations in our heads that. that are 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 help us be in long distance runners, um, and uh, just actually we just published another paper on that a few a few weeks ago in my lab. But uh, um, uh, it was really the my my research on the head that got me started, started me you know on this journey of thinking about the evolution of of human running. So um, now literally we have adaptations from our heads to our toes to help us be long distance runners.
0: And, and when you say long-distance runners, does that also mean long-distance walkers?
1: Yeah, but walking isn't as much of a challenge, right? Because um, when you walk, you always have one leg on the ground. There's not that kind of uh, jolt that you get when you're, when you're landing. I mean, running is basically jumping from one leg to another. Mm-hmm. When you hit the ground, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a collision between your body and the ground that's much greater than when you're, when you're walking. And there's a, a shockwave that travels right up your body. It takes about seven milliseconds from the ground to your head, and it causes your head to pitch forward really rapidly. And it doesn't happen when you walk. And, and it turns out we have really cool mechanisms that we evolved independently, uh, uniquely in humans uh, to help keep our heads still when we run. And uh, a nice way of thinking about it is if you've ever run behind somebody with a ponytail, right? And you watch their ponytail right that ponytail is going up and down and side to side it's like a figure eight right and yep, the, yep. but their head is pretty still right and the ponytail is essentially an accelerometer it's telling you the accelerations that are acting on the head <clears throat> and so it turns out we have all these unseen mechanisms that are keeping our head still despite the fact that there are all these incredible forces acting on it and that's and you know we've, we've, we've done some research on what those mechanisms are one of them is that um, your arm actually acts as a passive counterbalance to your head your arm and your head weigh basically the same thing. And when your head pitches forward, your arm falls down and you have this, you turn this little muscle that's connected to this little ligament. And it, and it basically it's like a, it's like, it's like what keeps a ship stable, right? Or, or, or a skyscraper it's called a, a mass damper. And, um, and it, it actually passively stabilizes the head. It's very cool.
0: Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So this, we are a big dog state. Of course, we love our dogs and we spend a lot of time with our dogs. Dogs seem to be, I mean, I, I understand that they don't have the same sweat mechanism as us, and that's part of the reason why we may be able to, in certain instances, outlast dogs. But do dogs have some of these same adaptations evolving alongside us?
1: Sure. Well, dogs are dogs, and humans are what we call cursorial mammals. So cursorial means to run. And so like, like humans, dogs also have a number of adaptations for, for running. Of course, some some dog breeds are better than others for, for, for distance running, right? You, I don't think you're going to get a Chihuahua to do the Iditarod. No, um, <laughs> it, <laughs> well, it might be a little matter. cold
0: too. <laughs> there are actually kind
1: of a lot of, a lot of breeds you wouldn't manage to get to the Iditarod. But, <laughs> um, but uh, so some dog breeds have been bred for endurance running, um, um, but but the thing is that you know humans are quite exceptional, even compared to dogs uh, over long distances. You know, mm-hmm. um, I see your dog right behind yeah, you. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: and it's a husky, so it's definitely yeah. a dog, Alaskan husky. So sure. she was bred so, to
1: run. Right, exactly. Well, I've you know I've had the the good fortune to, uh, not in Alaska but in Greenland, go go on um, on a you know with the Inuit, mm-hmm. on, you know, be pulled by dogs. You know, yeah, uh, it's an amazing experience. Um, and you just see just how astonishing those are. But you know, but when they're going full speed, right? They're still trotting, right? And they're mm-hmm. and they're panting and they're dumping heat even in incredible cold cold temperatures. So dogs have all kinds of adaptations, just like humans, um, that we've independently evolved uh, mm-hmm. to um, to run long distances. But um, but you know when you run the marathon, uh, it, there's a reason people don't bring their dogs with them. Uh, yeah. uh, dogs could do a marathon, but not at the speeds that uh, that humans can do a marathon, mm-hmm. especially when it gets hot.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So the kind of the central thing of how you start your book is born to rest or run. And again, I really liked this because I've always been what uh, I had an old boyfriend call me the world's laziest triathlete. And then you kind of confirmed that what I've done all my life has been right. <laughs> you know, that we have these like extended periods, maybe of, um, activities, but then we're also born to rest as well. And that there's nothing wrong with that.
1: I mean, I think uh, one of the main arguments of the book is that, um, is that we need to have, be more compassionate and understanding of people who struggle to exercise, because exercise, which is I define as discretionary, voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness, is a really modern, strange, weird behavior. And until recently, people had to be very physically active in order to survive, right? We, we didn't have all this technology and, you know, machines to to enable us to sit all day long and stare into computers, we, you know, we had to go out and either hunt and gather or grow our food or whatever, and um, and that takes energy. And when you have only a limited amount of energy, any energy you spend on physical activity is energy you don't spend on other things that are important. And of course, natural selection, what natural selection cares about the most is, is is reproduction. So it's a it's a deep and fundamental and basic human instinct not to be physically active unless it's either necessary or rewarding. And, mm-hmm. and, um, for most of human evolutionary history, we were physically active when it was necessary. I, in other words, to get dinner or, or not be somebody else's dinner or, or when it was rewarding, like, like dancing, right. When you find a mate, for example, and, but, you know, to, to go to a, a, a gym and run on a treadmill mm-hmm. and get nowhere for a lot of money and, and on a, yep. on a really boring, loud, noisy machine or, or, or think about it, buying heavy. Metal objects whose sole purpose is to be lifted, right? Which is what I did this morning, by the way. <laughs> is a really strange and weird and bizarre thing. Imagine explaining that to your great, great, great grandparents. Like you did mm-hmm. what? You spent money on a, on on like a on, on a on a weight to lift. Why? Why don't you don't want to just go out and you know work in the fields or something yeah. like that? I mean, so it's an instinct. It's a fundamental, basic human instinct to avoid unnecessary physical activity. And and those of us who who are pretty good at at exercising. Still have, all of us have trouble getting out the door. I mean, I'm a, I'm a runner and um, I, you know, whinge and complain, especially on cold winter mornings here in Boston when it's, I imagine Alaska's probably even a bit worse than Boston, but
0: I'm looking uh, at the temperature right now is minus one. So <laughs> oh, yeah, it's worse than
1: Boston. So today's kind of like, it was in the, it's like in the forties, you know? Oh, that sounds and,
0: lovely. <laughs> no, no,
1: it was gray and damp and cold and miserable. It wasn't, it's not a cheerful day. And, um, and, you know, I was like bitching and moaning and, you know, whining and, you know, I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go out to this morning. Um, and I had to kind of force myself and um, basically my wife had to force me out the door, let's be honest. And, um, and that's true of all of us, right? We're not, there's not something special about, uh, about, about people who exercise. It's just that we figured out how to overcome that in the instinct, um, because we also know it's going to be rewarding, but there's nothing we shouldn't blame and shame people for that instinct. It is fundamental and natural and basic, and we need to be compassionate rather than judgmental.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that, and and as you know, as an aging athlete, I like that because you also kind of recognize that there are different times in your life for different things, and that that's okay, you know. And if it, if the pandemic taught anybody anything, I would hope that that would be it. Like it's okay to change your habits a little bit and do something different.
1: <laughs> we haven't had any choice, have
0: we? No, we haven't. Um, I, so I really, uh, I put the, in my notes, reproduction trumps all, because you made a big point of that throughout the book, that um, reproduction is the number one reason for anything that we do is to pass on our genes. That's the most important thing. So I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but um, what is it with people who are extreme exercisers? Um, because some of them, I mean, I know someone, this was like 30 or 40 years ago, who was a triathlete and was trying to have a baby with his wife and the doctor had told him like, you've got to slow down on your exercise, you know, cause he was out training six, eight, 10 hours a day. And so he would basically cheat on his wife by taking, he took his bike to his office so he could ride from his office and he would go on six hour rides on a Saturday telling her that he was working and in, because he was just so obsessed with it. So they were trying to have a baby, you know? So what, what is that? Is that just like, you know, the, obviously it's the exception, but what creates that? Do you think, is it our culture or? Um, Look,
1: I mean, there's so few people at that level, right? We're talking about such a small number of individuals.
0: I guess I just uh, know a lot of them. <laughs> there's
1: there's basically almost no data on them. Um, mm. um, and to be sure, um, you know if you're if you're doing ex- exercise at that level, you know the energies you know the energy you're spending on physical activity is not going towards some other things, and reproduction is one of them. Um, because after all, life is about. You know, I like tell my students, you know, life is basically about food in and babies out. That's the mm. equation of life, right? And so, um, but when you are really that insanely physically active, you're spending that energy on physical activity rather than babies. Um, and that's true for men and women. Women more than men, but men as well. But you know what? That's like a I would say that's a kind of a strange modern pathology. I don't think people, nobody in the Paleolithic had the opportunity to do that. You. You die, right? You you couldn't get the energy necessary to do that. This is a really modern, weird, abnormal behavior, you know that um, the, uh, that that's been made possible by by our weird, strange, you know, post-industrial world where you can go to a supermarket and get all the calories you want for for basically nothing. But in until recently, that was impossible. Nobody could do that. Uh, so um, so yeah, there's a few kind of let's call them freaks, shall we, yeah. <laughs> um, who who might be so compulsive that they, you know, swap one addiction for another. And sometimes that addiction is physical activity, but they're not, um, they're not really representative of 99 point something percent of humanity. And so, mm-hmm. um, I don't think they're very particularly useful. I think one of the problems also in our in the way we think about exercise and physical activity is we spend way too much time thinking about elite athletes, right? Yeah. People who spend all their time training to do just one thing, right? And we didn't evolve to do that. Nobody's nobody in the Paleolithic spent, you know, devoted their life to basically running from one line to another line that was either you know a hundred meters or five thousand meters or. 26.2 miles or whatever, give the distance, right? Um, as fast as possible to the exclusion of all other things, right? Mm-hmm. That was not possible. Uh, nor did we uh, evolve to, you know, throw an object just as far as possible or, or you know, you, you come up with any, you know, we, we evolved to be jacks of all trades and, and to be generally physically active at, you know, in a variety of things that were useful, but to otherwise conserve energy and rest. And, and today in the modern world, there are people who are enabled, you know, able to do these sorts of very strange things, but, but that's not, um, but that's a very kind of bizarre modern thing, and and mm-hmm. I don't think we should read too much into it. It doesn't really mm-hmm. tell us about anything, and I think most elite athletes, you know, there's a fascination with them, but I don't think they really tell us very much about anything other than the extremes of of what human physiology is capable of. But who cares, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, does it really matter that somebody can run a marathon in less than two hours? I mean, I'm, you know, excited when Kipchoge did that, but, yeah. but does it really tell us anything? Does it make the world that much of a better place? I mean, it's cool, it's fun, it's good. I'm not opposed to it, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's. To be honest, to a, to a large extent, it's also just entertainment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one, of one of the other kind of theories I did also wanted to go back to and circle back to, which this is the last time we'll, we'll go on this. And then I want to talk about the myths that were in the book. Cause of course, everybody wants to hear myths and have them debunked and everything. So we'll get to that, but, um, is, uh, pursuit hunting. And this is kind of in the idea of like a, a marathon or something. And that's kind of, uh, one of the theories about how we evolved, right. Is that we were able to chase prey down that it became overheated and then we could eventually give it get to it and kill it because we didn't have the strength otherwise to do do that. Is that yeah, still we kind call of that the,
1: persistence hunting? So persistence so hunting. We have evidence that that people in pretty much every part of the world uh, did that. Even we have evidence even that Inuit did it in the snow with caribou. So um um and I've done it actually we ran musk oxen um but uh in Greenland but um um it's uh I didn't make it into the book but um um
0: well, wait, 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 we have muskox up here, so we need to hear about this story. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, it was really cool. So I, I, I got, I was invited to go on a, a trip where we were following some Inuit hunters who are trying to revive some traditional methods of hunting in Greenland and got to, got to go into muskox and hunt. That was kind of, that was kind of crazy. Yeah, we, we, and
0: it was just like, how long did it take to, to do this?
1: um well so it's a little complicated because because there was also uh, they were also using um they, they also shot the animal too so we, okay. we were chasing it after it was wounded so it wasn't a, a traditional persistence hunt i don't want to pretend it and was but we were still they on snow machines chased, i'm sorry but are
0: you chased by foot not on snow yeah machine? on foot. yeah, yeah. yeah. okay <laughs> I,
1: and uh right by the central glacier of greenland and wow they're wearing you know sealskin suits and yeah i was god i was drenched in sweat after oh. that um I felt like, you know, like you know, running in those in that kind of cold weather gear is um, not trivial, right? You're you've yeah. got a lot of extra pounds on you. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow, what a beautiful place! What an interesting um, experience that was. But mm-hmm. um, but people um, all around the planet. Like we have evidence from it from Siberia. We have evidence in all over Africa and no, all, North and South America and, and Australia. But um, um, that but p- people would. You know, running was part of the way people used to hunt, uh, mm-hmm. especially before uh, modern weapons and before we domesticated dogs, which is only fairly recently and, and all that. So, so, um, uh, so, you know, we have to, we think the world today is normal, but it isn't. And, and so I think one of the major reasons that, that maybe the major reason that we evolved these abilities to run long distances was in order to become hunters and scavengers. And, and then of course, now in the modern world we don't have to do this anymore, so people have kind of lost a lot of these memories or lost a lot of these these uh, um, a lot of the, the, the understanding of how it works. But um, but if you just start looking in the ethnographic literature and you start talking to people, you, f- you find more and more and more evidence for this. You know, to be a hunter, you need to be a runner mm-hmm. in, in, until recently.
0: So um, this makes me think of gender differences because do we. Understand that most of those persistent hunters were male, or in uh, so, good question. yeah,
1: <laughs> good question. And the answer is, I think we exaggerate that. Um, uh, if you start looking, you find evidence that women did this too in lots of cultures. So uh, we have evidence, for example, in in Africa of um, of women. I mean, in general, mothers are constrained when they have children. That that makes it difficult. But 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 mothers, but women before they. Um, before they have children or, 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 or if they can, you know, have somebody else take care of the kids, um, uh, run in a number of cultures, the, in, in the Amazon, there are cultures where the women, uh, do amazing hunting in the Philippines. Uh, so, and, you know, when I go for a run, like I I went yesterday, um, today's Monday. Yeah. So yesterday I went and ran out uh, battle road in Lexington, which is where the which is where the British troops were retreated from the Concord Bridge and at the beginning of the American Revolution and, there were, and the militiamen were taking shots at them. Oh, and I would say I saw more women running than men, right? So look, I mean, it's no surprise, right? We know that women can run just as well as men. Mm-hmm. They may be just quite as fast at the at the elite level, but other than that, I mean, obviously, women have all the adaptations that men have to run. So, like, well, why do we even talk about this? And and the yeah. reason we we think about this is that we're so preposterously focused on elite athletics. Like, we think about all that matters is whether or not you know women can run as fast as men at the elite you know level. But you know, natural selection we we didn't we didn't evolve to race. Right, we evolved to run at a kind of general general gentle pace, um, mm-hmm. and women are just as good as men at that. And you know. Uh, nobody was running, you know, f- you know, five-minute miles uh, for 26 miles back in the Paleolithic. They were doing like half-marathon kind of distances and walking half the time, running half the time, mm-hmm. and they were doing 10-minute miles. So, so, so women are obviously just as capable as men of doing that. And and uh, so we exaggerate the the differences in between men and women all the time. And I think that's again that's a perversion that comes from our our relentless and I think um, abnormal focus on elite elite athletics. Mm-hmm they, Mm -hmm. they, they lead us astray. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and it's true. I think that the, if you're looking at the percentage difference between like the sprint world records, again, if we're going to look at the elite people and like the marathons and as the distance gets longer, the uh, males and females get closer in terms of their relative performance, I think in time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's some different analyses on that topic, Mm -hmm. but again, who cares about the elites? It's irrelevant. You know, that's, Evolution didn't act on that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's irrelevant. It, uh, and, and we should stop even paying much attention to them. Mm-hmm. I think there's way too much attention paid to elite athletes um, in terms of exercise physiology. I mean, the, what, what Elliot Kipchoge does has nothing to do with what you and I do and what nothing to do with what most, what most human beings do. And in fact, I think it actually can be problematic. I, I, I often call this like Barbie syndrome for athletes, right? You know, yeah, it's like, it's focusing too much on, on models as, 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 as exemplars of human beauty. They're they're not, right? And they're not normal. Yeah. And elite athletes aren't normal either. And we should stop paying so much attention to them in terms of, you know, as role models, in terms of like what we should be at. You know, what matters is really just going out and enjoying yourself and having fun and, and being physically active. And, and whether you can run a, you know, a mile in less than four minutes, I mean, who cares?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, hmm we'll, Okay, we'll stop talking about elite athletes then. <laughs> <Good>. In <laughs> fact, I- Yeah, (laughs) I can tell you're done with that, aren't you? You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. We're going to take a short break and when we return, we'll hear more from Daniel Lieberman, author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding.
1: You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org.
0: listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with Daniel Lieberman, professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University continues. In fact, let's go uh, to people of our age because I am a new grandparent this year and you talk about the, I think it was like the theory of the active grandparent or something like that. Yeah, the act of
1: grandparent hypothesis, which we yes. just published a big article on. In, oh,
0: in, cool. I want to in, hear in, all in, about in, it.
1: In pre- so if I, I actually think that's probably, the, to me, the most important thing in the book, actually, mm. which is that um, you know humans evolved uniquely to be grandparents. Um, we evolved to live decades after we stopped reproducing, unlike any other animal, with the possible exception of orcas, killer whales. Yeah. Um, but most animals don't live after they stop reproducing, you know, occasionally domestic dogs can, et cetera, but, but that's um, abnormal. Right. And, and, and we didn't evolve, um, to, um, to be, you know, elderly grandparental sort of retirees. We evolved to actually work as we age. Right. So, so if you look at what farmers and in, in places like Kenya, where I work or hunter gatherers and, in and, and all over the world where when people have studied them, grandparents don't just retire and move to florida what they do is they actually work harder right they they're hunting they're gathering they're farming they're they're taking care of children they're processing food they're, they're 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 and and when and they do that they're they're helping their children and their grandchildren and they're passing on and wisdom and advice but also energy and food and surplus and 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 in turn that physical activity helps them stay long live longer and stay healthy because we know that physical activity turns on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that slow senescence, slow the, the, the aging of the body and prevent all kinds of diseases. And, in the, in the, and until recently, before the advent of modern medicine, people's lifespan was determined by their health span, how long they live without chronic disease. And we know definitively, I mean, there's hundreds of studies which show that exercise, physical activity, keeps you healthy longer. So our ability to live long is partly a result of our being selected in order to stay physically active as we get older in order which which in turn helps us live long. So in other words we evolved not to not to retire when we get older but actually to stay physically active and that's that maintenance of physical activity is really important in maintaining health and 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 and, and preventing disability. So in the United States today for example people can say, well, you know, I can live long without exercising and that's true, but the average lifespan of American today is about 79, but their average health span of American is 63. Oh,
0: that's the whoa. average.
1: Wow. So that means the average American, the average, and that means there are plenty of people who, for whom this is worse, spends, um, spends 16 years in a state of chronic disability before they die. Mm. And, and we know from tons of studies, we know why and how, right that physical activity decreases your chances of all these chronic diseases that that decrease health span mm-hmm. so physical activity prevents heart disease it prevents most forms of cancer it prevents diabetes it prevents osteoporosis it helps prevent arthritis it prevents our alzheimers it's actually the most if you want to prevent alzheimers nothing 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 comes even remotely close to physical activity nothing by 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 an orders of magnitude and um, and so, yes, you can live a long life without being physically active, but you increase your chances of, 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 of a wide range of diseases. You increase your vulnerability to getting chronically ill um, by being physically inactive. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is that until recently, nobody had the option to be physically inactive. So we live in this modern world where people can now become inactive. And the only reason we were able to extend the lifespan is because we have medical care. We have Mm -hmm. all kinds of drugs and pharmaceuticals, et cetera, but we can have our cake and eat it too, right? If we, if we were literally and figuratively, if, 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 if people stayed more, more active as they aged.
0: Well, you definitely want to enjoy those final years. You don't want to spend 16 years in chronic pain and not able to do anything. That doesn't sound like much fun. No, but,
1: but, (laughs) but to do that, you have to overcome deep instincts. And that's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we've all been there in a, in a in a mall and there's an escalator next to a stairway. We all want to take the escalator, right? Because yeah. because it's a deep and fundamental instinct, even though there were no escalators in the stone age, right? We want to save energy. And and unfortunately, that doesn't do us any good. Mm-hmm. And so we need to help each other um compassionately, you know, non you know, coercively to 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 um to um to do that. And that's not a trivial task today.
0: Yeah. Um, let's definitely circle back and talk at towards the end about how we do that, but let's hit a couple of these other myths that you had in there. Um, uh, one I think is um, that I think will resonate with a lot of people because we've heard this a lot is that sitting is unhealthy. And I thought it was interesting that you showed in lots of different cultures, people doing what doing sitting in their culture, but it doesn't maybe look like in our culture.
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's so much BS written about health, right? And one of them is sitting, right? The sitting is the new smoking. Right. And I mean, sorry, does anybody actually think sitting in a chair is as bad as smoking a cigarette? I I don't. (laughs) Of course not. Nobody believes that. (laughs) And um, And yet, we're told that, you know, your chair is out to kill you, right? I mean, i think that's one of the reasons we make people exercised about exercise right Mm -hmm. um there's nothing abnormal about sitting you know your dog and my dog spend most of their days sitting right do they you know i mean cows sit you know birds sit every every animal sits so do we and turns out that hunter-gatherers sit just as much as we do so let's not demonize something as normal and natural and sensible as sitting What the problem is not sitting per se is that that's how we sit, right? Mm -hmm. If you sit all day long, and it turns out you also sit in order to get to work by sitting in your car and you, and then you sit in the evening, sitting, watching TV. And in other words, if you never get physically active, well, of course, that's a problem.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it turns out that, that um, leisure time sitting is what's really most, most correlated with, with, with disease, not, not work time sitting. And then the other issue is that is, is how we sit. And it turns out that what really matters is the, is the length, the duration at which you sit. So getting up every once in a while, getting up every, say, 10, 15 minutes, you know, it just wakes up your body, turns on your muscles, you use up. It's like turning on your car, right? You know, there's does does all kinds of good things. And so really two people can sit exactly the same amount per day. But if one person gets up frequently as a, and, and the other one doesn't, that person who gets up frequently is going to be much more metabolically healthy. And so so there are, there are better and worse ways to sit. Um, but let's not pretend that sitting is the same thing as smoking a cigarette.
0: That just made me think like that is really an argument for allowing people to work at home because I was just talking to a young guy in my neighborhood on one of my nightly walks and he's talking about how he's been working from home for a year and a half and He's like a millennial and he's like, oh, this, you know, my generation, we're going to change this. This is going to change. He goes, and I get up, you know, and I don't just sit at my desk all day. I get up and I do my laundry and I get up and take the dog for a walk and I get up and make myself something to eat or whatever. So he's actually moving a lot more working at home than he was at the office where he just sat and had to grind away.
1: Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, when I'm working at home, I get up all the time to take care of the dog and, you know. Mm -hmm. make myself a cup of tea and this, that, and the other. And it's all good.
0: Yeah. I guess some people might call that procrastination, but whatever. Right.
1: (laughs) I just call it breaking up my work.
0: Yeah. That's good. (laughs) Uh, Another one I was really curious about um, is that the myth that you need eight hours of sleep every night. And I'm going to preface this by saying, if I don't have an alarm, I sleep for like nine hours, sometimes more. And is that bad? You know, so
1: what's the deal with sleep? Well, again, I think we make people exercised about all kinds of things, including inactivity, <laughs> an and one of them is sleep, right? So, you know, um, um, you know, this idea, this idea of eight hours was completely made up recently, um hunter-gatherers, people who don't have electricity and alarm clocks and whatever, they don't sleep eight hours on the average. They tend to sleep less. Um, and, um, you know, people sleep more when it's dark and less when it's light and, you know, more when it's cold and less when it's warm and whatever. But but we've kind of fetishized eight hours. And then and then there are all these people out there who'd like to scare us, right? The sleep industrial complex. If you don't get eight hours, something wrong with you, you've got insomnia. And, and then you go out and buy all kinds of crap and then, yep. you, you know, drugs, which which kill you and, you know, special mattresses that don't really work and, you know, clips for your nose and whatever, you know, mm. and, and, um, and, and all that they do is just make people stressed and guess what, stress prevents you from sleeping. Now, I don't wanna, I don't wanna um, uh, trivialize that absence of enough sleep is a, is a health problem, it is, but, but, but eight hours, there's no evidence ever that eight hours is optimal. In fact, if you look at big epidemiological data sets when you look at longevity against how much you sleep. It turns out there's a kind of a U-shaped curve, and and for most people, and there's a lot of variation. So there's no, you know, you, just what happens for one person is not the same as another person. But it turns out that seven hours is, tends to be optimal for most people. Mm-hmm. But but um, you know, which again, just back off from the kind of judgmental <laughs> um, kind of uh, medicalization commodification of, of of our bodies, and sleep is one of them, and um, um, you know, we make, and it, you know, it doesn't do anybody any good um, except, you know, for the few people who who, who are getting like three or four or five hours of sleep and they knew they should get more. And we know, and they know they should get more, but, you know, you know, scolding them doesn't help. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, It just makes things worse.
0: Yeah. Uh, Speaking of commodifying exercise, um, sports, sports, we kind of associate sports with exercise and we get our kids into all these sports and team sports, which are not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying they are, but, um, definitely there's a lot of money involved around that in keeping your kid healthy. Um, and you have, a uh, one of your myths was that sports equals exercise. And I think, um, yeah, yeah, look,
1: people had to be physically active I and mean, like sports have a role, right. And I'm, 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 i love sports, right. Yeah. But, um, they, they teach, Skills they teach, they help generate, develop, develop um, you know athletic abilities and 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 they help you know know, capacity to do things. Um, But I think that sports in many cultures also evolved to help people um, play nicely, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if the other team scores a goal on you, it's not appropriate to go like punch them, right? or if the other team wins, it's not appropriate to pretend that they didn't, right? Which is, I think, some of our politicians need to learn. But uh-huh. um, um, you know, what if, what if one team won the Super Bowl and the other team said, "Actually, no, you didn't win. You know, actually, we won." Um, you know, w- um, that's why we play sports, right? We to t- to learn how to treat each other appropriately and properly, use according to the golden rule, mm-hmm. and and um, and so sports has a much greater role than just simply physical activity. And 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 sports, of course, works great for some kids, but not for others. I mean, I was a I was a bench warmer when I was a kid. I wasn't good enough to be on, you know, a first 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 you know tier player on the soccer team I was on. So I spent most of my time on the bench, right? Where all the other kids were faster and better than than me. And so I didn't get a lot of exercise playing soccer as a kid. Uh, so let's not equate also sports with, with exercise for for everybody. It's mm-hmm. only and as as kids get older and older and older, the and competition gets more intense. Only the best ones get to do most of the activity. So so sports has a role. It's wonderful. I'm all in favor of sports, and you know I'm on the athletic committee here at Harvard to, to promote sports, etc. But but sports isn't isn't exercise for most people, and and um, and sports is also part of our industrial commodified uh, um, uh, form of exercise, and and that's fine, but it's, it's not for everybody. And so we should kind of back off on thinking that sports are the only way of, of promoting physical activity. It isn't, I think, but I think everybody knows that.
0: Yeah. And I think also like growing up, I mean, I played soccer too, but I grew up running and skiing and um, swimming and of course, riding my bike around, you know, like when we were kids, you rode your bike everywhere. And those are all things that you could carry on into adulthood to keep yourself active. Whereas things like, well, soccer, not so much soccer. You can't and football. You can't. And maybe, I mean, there's a lot of people who play basketball still as they get older, that seems to have a good league of people as they get older, play basketball, but football for sure is one of those and soccer, because you have to have so many people that you just they're can't not continue. Lifelong,
1: they're not lifelong pursuits. No. Right. And, exactly. And, uh, and um, you know, it's, It's, um, and that's too bad. Like, I mean, how many people play, I I don't know. There's all kinds of like water polar in their seventies. I don't know. Maybe there are some, but I'm sure they'll write to me now too. But yeah,
0: um, I know a few, so they'll (laughs) all hear from them too. So, (laughs) but, but,
1: but, you know, for the most part, um, you know, sports, uh, there, there are some sports that people continue to play all their lives and that's great. But, uh, but there are others that uh, people play until through college and then that's it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then they're kind of like, well, what do I do now?
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: um, um, and look, I think what matters is being social, and sports are social. Mm-hmm. And so I think the more ways in which we can get help people be physically active by being social, the better. And and sports is fun. You know, it's fun to go out and play a game of soccer with a bunch mm-hmm. of people, or fun yeah. to go out for for you know whatever. And uh, you know, you know triathlons are also you know it's a, actually very social, right? Um, it's a super but-
0: social sport.
1: Sure. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been to Kona and you know, there are 80 year old people running Kona. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, but, um, but uh, so that's good. And if that helps you out, uh, get out and be active, that's wonderful, but it doesn't help everybody. Right. So, so I'm all in favor of sports. Sports are wonderful, but, um, but let's, let's also help accommodate those who aren't that competitive or, or want to do things that are are don't involve, you know, sports and and that's okay too and we just need to again be you know you know have a, just have a have a, a really broad approach to the problem.
0: So how do we start that? I mean, I think for me I feel really fortunate that I had parents who were really active and that's why I'm active. And my brother the same, you know, we're active because our parents were active. Um but not everybody has that opportunity and it depends on where you come from, where you live, if you grew up in the inner city or you grew up in a rural area um how do we start to develop this culture of activity that's not part of being money or you know being that you're going to be an olympic athlete it's just like this is well, just something you do
1: so i don't know uh, nobody knows the answer to that question I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're, no you're not going to solve but, this
0: problem right now
1: <laughs> but i will say that the part of the problem is that we've uh, we've our approach to this topic has been primarily from two, two, um, two perspectives. one is the commodified sort of industrialized commercialized perspective you know what you can sell mm-hmm. um, which you know helps a lot of people you know gyms and and you know Iron Man and whatever you know works for some but not for most people. And the other is we medicalize it. We, we tell people, we prescribe it, get 150 minutes a week. Right? And, and look, the, the experiment's been done and we know that the vast majority of Americans don't respond to, to either of those, right? Mm-hmm. Only about 20% of Americans get the minimum of 150 minutes recommended by every major health organization on the planet. So we've, we've done the experiment. We know that commodification and medicalization only get you so far. Again, I'm not opposed to them, but they're not sufficient solutions. And I think I think that a better approach is to think about exercise like another modern, strange, weird behavior that we never evolved to do, which is education, right? Think about it. until recently, nobody read. until three thousand years ago, or three you know five thousand BC maybe or whatever three thousand BC, not not a single human being ever read. And now, you know until the industrial revolution, the vast majority of human beings were illiterate, right? Now, we think not reading is normal, but it's not right. It's a, it's a very weird modern behavior. And the, how have we made education like reading and math and all the other skills we make our kids learn, how do we make that work Well, we make it necessary and we mm-hmm. make it rewarding. You know, school is fun for the most part, usually, right. Um, <laughs> you, you go, we make it necessary you got to go to school but we also make it fun you see your friends and you get to get games and you get to do recess and you get to do music musicals and you know all the good things that happen in school and i think that we should do the same we should think of edu- exercise in the same way it's a modern behavior that we need to figure out as a collective as a community to make necessary and fun and guess what if we do that if we for example make physical education more a part of our curriculum right and kids do it and we and we and we reintroduce it to college students right which it's been dropped by universities all over the world right um, and which is where the time period when people develop their habits for the rest of their life and we and we figure out ways to help adults you know dance on city squares and whatever you know um, we will reap enormous benefits in terms of reduced levels of diabetes and heart disease and and cancer and alzheimers and and you know i will make a bet if you got people in congress to exercise they would treat each other better right mm-hmm. they'd stop they'd stop acting like the baboons that they are right now you know i mean sorry i shouldn't call our <laughs> representative uh, elected people baboons but let's, let's be honest right i mean you yeah. just you know i I'm, I'm, I'm sure that physical activity would make them nicer you know if they all, all had to go play soccer together or 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 whatever they would they, they'd start treating or good. each other
0: or going for a run with somebody is just so cathartic, you you know? Democrats and
1: Republicans run together and like, you know, that would make the world a better place. But anyway, um, they would stop being just jerks, right? Um, Mm -hmm. um, To each other, because they would suddenly have a communal collective behavior that they were engaged in. They would have to support each other. Um, uh, There's a reason we we do sports, right? It it actually makes us better people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And um, so I think if we can treat exercise more the way we treat education, I think we can really help people. Make it necessary, but also make it rewarding, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be either or. It should be an and. And there are lots and lots and lots and lots of ways to do that. And, and, and the investment is trivial. It takes few dollars, and the reward would save us enormous amount of energy, enormous amount of dollars. I mean, we spend, think about it this way. We spend about um, uh, 20-something percent of our GDP on healthcare. Um and um 75% of the times when somebody walks into a doctor's office, it's for what we call um a um, a, 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 a disease that um, um could be avoidable, a preventable disease. Mm-hmm. And most of these diseases could be prevented by you know partly through diet, but also through a physical activity, through exercise. Mm-hmm. And we could we could um we could make people's lives more rewarding, healthier, better. Um by spending a trivial amount of what we spend on health care um, to help people be more physically active. And you know, we don't have to coerce them. It doesn't have to be like you know, a Stalinist state where we you know, force people to you know, do jumping jacks and, or, you know, or they get shot or something like that. It doesn't have to be like that. We can just make it fun. And it doesn't take a lot of money. And yet we're unwilling to do that as a culture. And, and, and we're paying an enormous price. And it's just, it's just a no-brainer to me. It's a complete total no-brainer. Um, and, but we do that, we have to do that with compassion because remember, you know, it's not, it's not normal to want to, to get up and do something that you don't have to do that, that expends energy. So we have to make it fun, mm-hmm. um, but we never evolved not to do it. It's, it's a mismatch. It's like not breathing, you know, it's, it's, it's a mismatch. And so mm-hmm. we have to understand that the world we've created is weird and that we have to, we have to take action to, um, to, um, to help us to help us help ourselves.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Dan. This has been really fascinating. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest, Daniel Lieberman. You can find pictures of Dr. Lieberman and his book on alaskapublic.org. The show was produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer. Thanks for listening and we'll see you outside.
1: Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org.